0: Hey, good morning, men. Good to see you this morning. I'm so glad you're here. We're gonna get rolling, get started. We got some guys still coming in, but I'm so glad you're here. Today, we're gonna maximize our time. As always, we want to start though. Again, I want uh, I've asked Damon Barry to come up and share with us uh, briefly a little challenge for each of you. And then, Damon, I'm gonna ask you to pray as we enter into our, our Bible study today.
1: All right. Uh, some of you guys were here last week, and we talked a little bit about a couple of upcoming trips for men designed specifically for you guys to join us on mission. And so uh, one of those is coming up, well, two of them are coming up next month in April uh, one to Guatemala and one to South Texas. Kelly Hamilton is leading the group to Guatemala, and Blair Thomas. Blair Thomas. We have a couple of Blairs. Blair Thomas is leading the group to South Texas, both in April. Uh, The deadline for Guatemala is like next week, so if you're thinking about that, I think Kelly, is Kelly here? You can talk to Kelly or me about either of those, about Kelly about Guatemala, I'll handle South Texas, okay, if you've got questions, but deadline for Guatemala is next week, and we've got 10 or 12 guys already signed up for that, so we could take few more. In South Texas, we got room for everybody. So uh, we'd love love for some of you guys to jump on one of those trips. If you haven't been in the past, uh, those trips both have somewhat of a construction opponent. You'll be doing some work uh, to share the gospel with, with families and people that uh, are in need. So a little different setup in each one, but we'd love to talk to you about that if, you're, if you have questions. And um, don't let, we have some people who can't go this year, but would love to help other people go. So if money is an issue on one of those trips, um, there are some guys that have reached out and said, hey, I can't travel this year, but I'd love to help some other guys go on a trip. One of them's having a baby, so he's not able to go. So don't let money be an, an issue. Mm-hmm. If that's what's keeping you from stepping up and going on one of those trips, let us know, and we can work through that too. Cool? All right, let me pray for us. God, we uh, we thank you for today. Thank you for getting us up early. Mm-hmm. Thank you for these men that have uh, devoted a, an hour of their day to... Uh, connecting with you and hearing from you this morning. Pray you speak through Jeff. God, open our hearts and uh, help us to hear and follow today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. All right. Thanks, Damon. Hey, uh, yeah, let me just reiterate. Uh, Damon said it. I have a real good friend who's a mission champion of the world, always recruiting people to go. And uh, he once told me years ago, um, he would tell groups or tell people, um, hey, if you want to go, feel prompting of the spirit to go. Uh, act like you're going and because a lot of times I don't have money. No act like you're going I don't know if I can get off where act like you're going All right And so I I just challenge you if you if if you can step out in faith You know, I could argue. Why wouldn't you go? That's probably the better question uh, We're all called to take the gospel to the world to our work today That's what this Bible study is much about is getting a set to be be witnesses in the world in our place but uh, there's something about a trip like that that will change your life. It's a fast track of discipleship, and it'll open your mind and your, 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 your heart to the world. In fact, some of you have been on mission trips. Uh, we'll be able to engage in this conversation today from our study as we, as we jump into a particular idea of how um, mission, uh, gospel, culture, uh, relevance, uh, all of those things take place. In, in context, and how we sometimes cross a fine line that we're going to talk about today called syncretism, uh, where you start to blend and mix culture, the gospel, Bible, worldly philosophy. There's, there's, a, there's a fine line between seeking to be relevant with a never-changing gospel in an ever-changing world, and it is the constant challenge of a believer who seeks to make a difference. So um, I want you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. If you'll do that, um, go ahead and turn there. And hey, Tanner, if you can, I'm gonna have you or someone back there. You can close those doors as we're now gonna dive in and get us going. We got some guys uh, that I'm sure are still coming. But hey, uh, here's what I want to do. Today is our our final day of the study, and um, we're at the the last part of the the book. And um, I want to encourage you. Some of you have said, "Man, what's what's next? What's happening next?" And uh, for this study, we're done today. We're going to launch again uh, the larger study churchwide, or men, you know, across the across the metroplex, I guess, uh, wide next fall. But there are groups that are taking place right after this one is started. I know there's some groups that Marty Lewis uh, is helping to facilitate, and groups that are meeting in homes and such. If you want to know more information about that, you can you can contact me, contact Marty. Uh, we may be starting another one. We've got two full groups, and he's uh, looking to launch perhaps another one. Others of you that want to keep meeting, uh, as is your habit, I would challenge you to to do so. Keep on meeting. Talk about life. Uh, come and bring scripture. Uh, talk about how the Lord's uh, speaking into your life and into your heart. You don't need uh, necessarily. You don't. You don't need a professional, um, seminary trained teacher, to have a Bible study and talk about how the Lord's moving in your life and to encourage each other. You know, the three irreducible questions of a disciple, what's God saying to me? How will I obey and who will I tell? Let that be your outline. Uh, Talk about how God's speaking into your heart and just encourage each other. It's good to be together, isn't it? It's good, just good to be men together and encourage each other in the Lord. So let me just challenge you to keep on keep on doing that. Here's what I want to do. Before we dive into the text today, um, you, you can look at your, at your notes there on the table. And I want to wrap up the study by summarizing some learnings briefly, quickly, and then move on to the final, um, which I think is a very appropriate final challenge towards us, uh, which is the third or one of the three final reforms that Nehemiah brought. We said it last week. He didn't just come to rebuild a wall. He came to really rebuild a religion, a faith group uh, that had lost their way. And that was his ultimate, um, ultimate challenge. You know, the walls falling, crumbling down was just a sign of, of the hearts of the people and the character of the people crumbling and that was his main task. So, look at the look on your notes there. Life lessons from the book of Nehemiah. Some of these we've hit. Well, we've hit on all of them through these eight weeks. And I want you to look uh, with me and just uh, follow along here. We must constantly inspect the walls of our lives. That was chapter one. Write that down. Constantly inspect the walls of our lives. As God reveals His truth to us, we must respond with repentance and return to Him. It will. It will happen this morning if. You're listening to the Spirit speak. His word will speak to you today, and will repent and return to Him in some way, some form. Number three, if you are doing God's work, you will face opposition. You may remember that. Don't be shocked. In fact, be prepared for it. Paul often, uh, you know, noted that if he faced opposition, it was he was certain that he was about the Lord's work. Um, so don't don't be don't don't be surprised. Uh, Number four, godly leaders allow their lives to be interrupted to confront injustice and address social inequities. God has put you in a place to fight for those who perhaps don't have a voice. Um, You all know that I have quite a passion about racial equality and, and racial reconciliation. God's just put me in a position to be able to speak into that in our city. In fact, many of you know that on the 18th, not this Sunday but the next, is the big pulpit swap and we've got pastor brian carter coming here if you're not a member of our church we encourage you to come on that day Uh, all of our members you guys need to be here or how about this you can come join me uh, Stephen carroll our choir and orchestra and and i'm sure a lot of others who are going to concord that day Um, come join us Uh, it'll change your life how many of you i'm curious talking a bunch of gringos bunch of white guys here um, and some of our hispanic friends uh, but uh, how many of you have been to, a, to an African American church before? Raise your hand. Okay, good. And most of you have. If you have not been, uh, you need, okay, come join me. All right, come come join us. And uh, I say that, they're going to bring it here. So you could come here. Uh, they're going to bring their men's choir, in fact. And uh, we're going to be challenged then, Stephen, to pull this group together as a group of men and have a men's choir next fall. So that's, that'll be part of that study. Um, But they're going to come, and it's going to be an outstanding day. That's on the 18th. All right, that's a little ad for that. Number five, look at this. Opposition is most often proof, there you go, that you're a threat to the evil one. And again, I think of Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, if you want to look at his resume, he just outlines the persecution that he has faced, all that he's gone through for the sake of the gospel, and uh, he would equate it to spiritual uh, battle, not consequence. But, but uh, uh, you know, or, or you know, just happenstance. But uh, because he's um, sharing the gospel. Number six, corporate worship is a life-changing practice in every believer's life. We spent a day talking about how important that is. Uh, and the writer of Hebrews tells us, "Do not neglect the gathering of the saints." It is a discipline of remembrance. We said every time we gather, it's why you're here this morning. It's why you got up early to be here. You knew that somehow God's going to speak to your heart. And remind you of who he is and who you are in light of that. So uh, number seven is that. God's word calls us to the discipline of remembrance and leads to a confession, to confession and repentance. That's what we saw in our our study uh, in that chapter 9 through 13. Ezra reads the scripture. Every time we gather, it is to remember what Christ has done. Number eight, the godly man sets himself apart. For the purposes of God. This is what I want to talk about today. Godly men set themselves apart in every area of their lives. The Bible uh, calls it uh, really sanctifying, you know, consecrating. Setting yourself apart for the holy purposes of God. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 13. I want to look at this. Now, before I do, I want to share a story I heard years ago. Um, A father was trying to teach his children about uh, discernment in what they put in their minds you know it's a real challenge nowadays Uh, he had a teenage son who was telling him that you know going to a pg-13 movie wasn't that big a deal uh and he wanted to go see this film and his dad said you know uh why why is it pg-13 i mean there's a they marked it for some reason Uh, it's not r so i'm glad about that but why is it 13 so well you know i think i think there's a little sex you know in it maybe there's a little something but it's other than that. It's a great movie. I mean, everybody's seeing it. So his dad, uh, you may have heard this story. He he said, "Well, okay, let's uh, l- let me let me do this." So he later on, they were still talking about it. Had some friends over. He said, "Hey guys, how would y'all like to have uh, have some brownies? I cooked some brownies, and uh, they're they're just same you know family recipe. Awesome. You know his boy, his son loved the, the brownies and chocolate brownies." He said, I've added a little something to it, uh, but uh, you guys can dive in. So they did. He got them some milk. I mean, he's taking care of them. These guys are loving it. I said, Dad, these are good, but they taste a little different, but they're good. But what else? What would you put in there? He said, oh, it's He said nonchalantly. Oh, dog poop. Just a little dog poop. That's all. And, the ba- and they just spit it out. I said, what? He said, no, no, not a lot. Not much. Not much. Just a little. A little bit of dog poop, but just a little bit. You can't even see it. I mean, you can't even tell it's in there, right? And they're, they're now they're going. What? I think maybe we can, you know. And his whole point was, hey, look, just a little, just a little bit dog poop. So you can go to a movie, just a little bit of sex, just a little, not much, just a little portion of the whole film. The little cuss words here and there, just a little bit. And, and he was teaching his boys this thing of what we're going to talk about of 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 syncretism, of bringing in culture into what we believe, the things that we might think are not that big a deal. And over time, if we're not careful, we'll drift and we'll find ourselves um, with something completely other than a biblical perspective or stance on a particular issue or area of our life. You know, none of us, none of us want to enter into or find ourselves addicted to, let's say, pornography, okay? But it started when we were younger or somewhere, and we said, that's not so bad, just a little bit, just a little bit of poop, that's all. Can hardly taste it. It's just a little bit, and then it leads to so much more. This was the great concern, and exactly what happened to the Jewish people uh, in Nehemiah's day. So, in chapter 13, we've already uh, looked at the three, well, I, we've, we've noted what the three um, areas of reform were, the main areas of reform that he brought. You might remember they, they were, uh, last week we talked about it, the Sabbath. Remember, that was one of them. So, a spiritual rhythm. Of life was so critical in the life of God's people, and it's critical for us today, as we talked about last week. So, a Sabbath rhythm of life. He said, "You have profaned the Sabbath." In verse seventeen of chapter thirteen, um, you might remember too. He tossed out Tobiah early on in chapter thirteen. He's clearing out the temple. He's cleaning out God's uh, people, uh, and he's going to he's going to make it right. He's tossing out all that is not of the Lord, and he says, you guys have forgotten the Sabbath. He also, one of the things we're not going to uh, go to and really focus on is um, another part of the reform was the tithe, okay? So uh, really, we, we said it's a an overflowing generosity, is how we talk about it here. The third piece of the reform, uh, very interesting, is the one we're going to land on today, talk about today, It's the purification of marriage. Um, so look at, let's go to uh, verse 23, all right? It's a passage on the Sabbath there from uh, up to verse 22. Remember the Sabbath. And then it says in verse 23, listen to this. In those days, also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. So these are different. You've heard the Moabites, the Ammonites. That's what uh, these are different people, not Jewish people. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah but only the language of each people. Now, I'm going to ask you the question, why, why was this so significant that they would not marry outside of the Jewish uh, religion? And you could argue Jewish race as much as religion. Why was it so important? Well, you said, what, what impact? Let me ask you this. What, what impact did it have on the family? What impact did it have on the children? It says they couldn't read the language or speak the language of Judah. Uh, the Bible... Their Torah was written in the language of Judah. And so you see this uh, delusion, uh, this delusion of, 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 of belief and, and, and people uh, deluding their, their beliefs. Now watch this. Keep going. Uh, verse 25. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Nehemiah wasn't playing around. He's upset. And I made them take an oath in the name of God. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to show you why. You say, man, this guy's kind of he's violent. Okay, we're not going to practice that. But there's a reason he's so angry here. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, now watch this. He hearkens back to King Solomon of Israel, sin on account of such women? You remember he had many, many wives, many concubines. Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made made even him sin. So this highly exalted king was really ultimately half-hearted for God, unlike his father who had a full whole heart for God. In verse 27, Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And look at verse 28. And one of, one of the sons of, of Jehoadiah, Jeho, however you say that, Jehoadiah, um, the son of uh, Elishab, the high priest, was the son in law of Sanballat. Watch this. One of the gals married his arch nemesis, uh, I mean, a, a, a daughter of. The arch nemesis, sandballot. I mean, he's hacked. He's hacked. The Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember then, oh my God. Now remember, he's, he's writing this journal, kind of a prayer journal. But now he's praying again. Remember, oh my God. He's saying, vengeance, justice is the Lord's. Because they have des- desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the, and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign and I established the duties of The priest and the Levites each in his work So he reestablished the worship of God and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits There's that tithe piece uh, Remember me. Oh my god for good Remember what I've done. I've sought to do what you have called me to do So here's what I want to talk about um, this whole prohibition of marriage, I want to place it in historical context so we understand what we're talking about, different from what we might see today. And then I want to talk about the significance of it and how we apply it, all right? So um, first of all, uh, questions that I want us to, to consider today, even as we uh, break into our groups, think further about uh, in, into the day, how does our lack of distinction in our culture today impact our influence? Now, what's called, what's called interfaith marriage in, in, in Judaism, or you could call a mixed marriage, intermarriage is another term, was historically looked upon with great disfavor. Um, and in fact, the Talmud, which is a Jewish commentary of the Torah, uh, strictly prohibited marriage outside of, of the Jewish faith. Interestingly, a, research, a recent study by Pew Research Centers Religion uh, and Public Life it, they project, uh, no, this project found the intermarriage rate to be 58% among all Jews and 71% among non-Orthodox Jews. Now, Orthodox Jews are going to be much more fundamental in their approach. They're Torah observant Jews. There's a Reformed strain of, um, of Judaism. Uh, temple Emanuel is a Reformed uh, uh, Jewish temple, one of, the, one of the largest, most influential in the nation, by the way, outside of new york city um but rabbi stern there's a good friend and an an incredible man and a wonderful rabbi but they're going to be a more reformed group okay um the the torah observant more orthodox jews uh still very much restrict uh in fact prohibit any jew marrying outside of uh of of the family right Uh, in the same way um there so then there's there's this tension though with the reformed jew even today that uh, said, you know, they, they still would prefer you marry. It'd be like us, right? It'd be very much like us. I would much prefer my children marry Christian, godly, committed, young, young man or woman, right? And, and for the same reason, even Orthodox, even Reformed Jews would say it for, like we would. I want my children, praise God, both of my girls who marry godly men who love Jesus. Because I believe, as I understand Scripture, the Jew would say this too. You can't be married. In my mind, biblic, you can't have a biblical marriage unless your spouse is a believer. You can't be one with that person. You can you can be married, you can procreate, you can have kids, but you can't be one biblically, spiritually, apart from Christ at the center of your marriage, of your life. Now, the Jew would say the same thing. It's the covenant before God Almighty that marriage... You, in fact, I was reading a, a one, one portion of the Talmud says that a Jew... Uh, cannot marry. I mean, there, there's, it's impossible for a Jew to marry a non-Jew. It's not marriage, is what they say. And so even the Reformed Jew would take that position. Today, you might not know that in Israel, it's unlawful for a Jew to marry a non-Jew. It's against the law. Now, it's, it's, there's an equality of the law. You can't be a Christian and marry a non-Christian in Israel. You can't be Islam, marry a, non, a non-Islam. Now, there, there are twists and, and turns in, in that uh, but it's, it's still a thing. And uh, so this is not like we're talking now thousands of years ago. Um, and the reason for it, of course, is Deuteronomy 7, 3. You shall not marry them, the Gentiles, about which the Bible speaks in the previous verses there. Um, you shall not give your daughter to their son, and you shall not take his daughter for your son. And the reason for the prohibition is clearly stated in the next verse. It says this, because he will lead your son astray from me, God, and they will serve strange gods, all right. So strange gods, are any ism, any other god, any other religion, up against uh, Torah observant, you know, Judaism. So even in our day, it is not a racial, uh, it's not a racial thing, but a religious thing at the heart. Okay, we need to get that clear. This is not well, you know, because back in the day. People say, well, no, see, the Bible says we can't marry. You know, black and white people shouldn't marry. You know, uh, black people, Hispanic people, white people, Hispanic, Asian, shouldn't happen. That's not, what the, that's not what we're talking about here in Scripture. What we're talking about is, is very much a Jewish religion, and, and the way to keep it pure before the Lord is to marry within, okay? And, and, I, and again, I could argue we're not far off from what we would probably say is the ideal, right, is right and good and biblical. For there's no possibility, they would say, for marriage uh, to take place apart from it. So um, all this to say, not only is there this diluting of what is pure, but I could argue it's not simply a diluting, there's a contamination. And that's how when you talk about being holy and set apart as God's people, there's really a contamination is another way to say it. Um, You've heard that we're not to be, it's in fact in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14. In fact, let me help land this and start to apply in our own, now that we've understood this portion. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, it says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, you know that a yoke was a wooden bar, right, that goes across the, the oxen uh, or the beast of burden, and the two would would work together. If you had a smaller one, a smaller animal and a large Hulking strong animal, you know, you'd essentially just kind of go around in circle. The other one wasn't doing his part. You'd have a taller animal up against a smaller animal, you got trouble. The two needed to be the same so that they could accomplish what they were meant to accomplish in partnership together. If they were not, if they were unequally yoked, they couldn't, they couldn't perform the task that they were given. In the same way, man, those of us who are married, if you're not yet married, To have a spouse who loves Jesus with all her heart, that you're serving together equally yoked so that you're accomplishing God's will in your life. Otherwise, you're working always constantly against one another. And this is what the Word of God would teach us. Now, some have noted that if you look at the context of 2 Corinthians 6, where it says, don't be unequally yoked, they've said, well, that's really talking about business partnerships. And in the context, it really is. But I'd argue, okay, then, if it's important in business, is it not more important? In marriage, (laughs) right? And so you can see over and over again, then you look at Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5 and other places throughout the New Testament. Clearly, I would would argue that the scripture would teach that a non-believer is not to marry a believer. Now, he does say, Paul says, if one's married already to a non-believer, stay married, because through you, they're going to be purified. Somehow, he's saying, they're going to come to faith as the hope For 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 a mixed marriage like that, so let's look at this syncretism. Let's talk about it here for a moment. The amalgamation—you can see it in your notes there—mixing, blending, or attempting attempted amalgamation uh, amalgamation of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought. Okay, so it's blending uh, of the Bible and culture. All right. I remember when I went to uh, to Africa uh, first time. Been there many times, but I've been to different parts of Africa. Where I I saw out in the middle of nowhere, people living in huts, a pastor shows up to preach, and he's got a lectern, looks about like this one. He's got a suit and tie on. He's got his black big black Bible, and they've got a choir that's singing, uh, you know, British or American uh, hymns. And I remember even as a young person thinking, this is this is kind of weird. Nobody else wearing a suit in town, and surely they're not singing. I mean, I've heard other kind of music here. This is really strange. And what you learn is, right, American, uh, European missionaries in the 1800s, 1900s in particular, go over, and we say, well, this is how you do church. You do church like this. You get in rows, and you sit here, and, you, and the guy wears a suit, and you, have, you sing these songs. These are hymns of the faith, and you sing them just like this. Melody doesn't sound anything like what you guys normally sing, but let's sing. Let's learn this. And they did. Now, we might think, well, of course, right? But here's what we're doing. We're saying, no, this is how you do Christianity. Let me ask you this. If, you, a, if you, were, you and I, we are, most of us, not all of us, are American, born and raised Americans, and we are American Christians. Let me ask you, do you think an American Christian lives out their faith differently than a Chinese Christian? You think a, a, an Indian Christian lives out differently than an African Christian? And if you say, well, shouldn't be different, well, in what ways, right? So you start to see how this, this kind of secretism is actually more complex than you might imagine. Surely there are songs that have taken over the globe and sung across the globe and around the world. But what, what, what we see there, missionaries came and said, this is what Christianity looks like. This is what worship looks like. And we simply drop our own culture on them. And what we've seen in more recent days is, is much more of a blend into, into culture. But you run into then this, how do you know? Uh, words like contextualization, uh, relevance. There's a word called obscurantism, where, where, where you dilute the promotion of ideas or practices that actually dilute the gospel, um, that actually obstruct the gospel, obst- obstructinism. It's a strange word. But, uh, but we, we do this, and when you study missiology, you, you ask questions. Do we have a biblical theology irrespective of culture? You know, Chinese China, or, or in Africa, or, or wherever you might be, or in more recent days. How about this, even closer to home? Uh, if someone were to say, well, I can't go to that church. I'm not Republican. How about that? Uh, I, I, I can't go to that church. Uh, because they, you know, I mean, we name it. But, it. but it is true in our day. I, I can name, you can think of, some churches even in Dallas, and some may think that of us. We have people who vote on all sides, uh, different parties and such. But there are certain churches, you can say, I can't go there, I'm not, I'm not Republican. Now you tell me, at what point has the gospel now impacted, uh, you know, the way we believe and think and practice in a way that's not biblical? You see, there's a real fine line. I'm trying to get us to think here about our own personal lives. Listen to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and through 17. Do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in, in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides in forever you know isaiah 40 verse 8 says the grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of god endures forever i have people you know it's popular nowadays and it was even more popular 10 5 years ago uh if you were on certain side of, of a of an issue in our culture well you're on the wrong side of history you're you're on the wrong side of history it's often like the homosexual issue or something like that you're on the wrong side of history if you're going that route uh, meaning a more biblical conservative route if you will uh, and I'm thinking, wait, the wrong side of history. I, I, recently, my mom, I'm gonna, let me show you this real quick. My mom, just as an example, uh, my mom's in a church in Charlotte. She's always uh, calling me on Saturday, texting me on Saturday, Sunday morning right before I preach. It's just a beautiful thing. Early Sunday morning. She's up getting ready to teach her class that she teaches in her in her church. She'll call me on Saturdays and wrestle with something she's studying. And I love it. You know, it's a lot of fun. She sent me an article that her pastor wrote. Uh, her, her Baptist church is a part of a, another, what I'd call uh, kind of a pseudo-denomination, um, more of a kind of a liberal bent at, within uh, the Baptist world. And, uh, and she sent an article that her pastor wrote because recently this group that some of you would know um, has decided that, uh, an, I think it's an 18-year-old um, uh, policy that they've had, uh, they're going to now hire and and deploy and send, in regard to mission work and such, uh, those who, who are who are confessionally LGBT, you know, Q, and um, and this isn't uh, where 18 years ago they prohibited, and now they're saying, well, th- well, this is going to come into play, but we're gonna we're we're willing now, we're going to hire and send, and and uh, this is not across the board. But uh, she she sent me an article that her pastor wrote, and she said I'm concerned about this, and I wanted to get your take on it. And so I, she sent me this article, and I read it. and He did a good job. He was kind of saying, you know, hey, we're not, we're gonna hardly we're not gonna take a stand really at all, but we're gonna stay with this group, uh, and here's what they're doing, and and we're okay, and and our tent's large enough, you know. And and I I get all that and understand that we seek to be that kind of church. But here's the question that I have for you as we think about this. I was thinking, okay, 18 years ago they had a prohibition if you will, that, no, we're not going to do this. 18 years ago, that's not long ago, right? And um, and I'm thinking, what changed? What's changed? Has the Word of God changed? Has our understanding of the Word of God changed? Have we now gotten smarter than 2,000 years of church history? By the way, that issue, if we were to dive into that, Catholics, Protestants across the board have agreed, biblically, on that. But in recent days, we've gotten a lot smarter. We've gotten enlightened. We now know something that, you know, gosh, all of our church fathers, the uh, great theologians of the past, the Reformation, we figured out something Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, those guys didn't understand. We got it now. But here's what was interesting um, this, this group that uh, has decided an 18 year old policy is somehow different now. Um, they, it's, they, they they offered this our global partners have decisively rejected the hiring of LGBTQ uh, people so they're so they're what they're doing see they're saying well now in certain areas we're not going we're not going to send those who would profess to be LGBTQ because in, in in our global partners have decisively said they're not no don't go there so you see what I'm here's the point American Christianity up against African Christianity, against Chinese Christianity. At what point is the Word of God, the Word of God, across the board? And I realize that we're priesthood of the believer, all the above, that we interpret scripture differently, but at some point we've got to discern, we've got to determine as men that we're gonna follow the Word of God. You know, we talked about the power of Billy Graham's message and his life. He stuck to the Word of God. He did not move from the Word of God. And there's a point at which we've got to stand against culture. Because, you know, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 1. You remember where he says, and I'll have to press on here. He says, um, he says where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? He, he, says, he says, has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of the world, the world did not know God through wisdom, it it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, those who are saved, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Where is the wisdom of this age? Listen, men, where is the wisdom of this age? I'll tell you where it is. On its way out. That's where it is. The word of God remains the same. And we seek to change it. We bring our own culture into it. That's syncretism. Okay? When we say something even 18 years ago, oh, they get they had it wrong. Wait, my buddy who loves Jesus was on that board and he got it. He got it wrong. Yeah, we know something now we didn't know then. All right? Because culture is shifting. You say, Well, what changed? Culture? Not the word of God. And and, and so we know that Second Timothy three sixteen, all scriptures breathe out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, there's the word, mature, all right, finished, completed, equipped for every good work. And so I'll wrap this up so we can uh, dive into our groups here. The complete man, as we wrap up this study, and, and I, I got off on that just as an example. I could use lots of examples of syncretism uh, and how we do this in our culture today. But uh, the complete man, write this down, guys. The complete man lives in response to what Christ has done for him. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut us short here, uh, or, or my study. Uh, lives, lives in light of God's Word, okay? Lives in response to what Christ has done. Lives in response in light of God's Word. And then, here it is, sets himself apart for the purposes of God. Listen to Psalm 4, verse 2 through 3. O men... How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. You see, men, we are to set ourselves apart intentionally every day, every morning before we enter into the world. Set ourselves apart. No, how about God has set us apart? You know this. Ecclesia, literally church, means set apart or called out ones. We've been called out to be different from culture. And so what I want to talk about in our groups here is, is that we'll talk about what is what does it look like? What does syncretism look like in our culture today? How might we be guilty of it? How can we set ourselves apart in the world and still be a vibrant witness? In fact, I could argue, no, when you set yourself apart without being a jerk, right, while still loving others, being a man of integrity, you can. In fact, that is how you're a vibrant witness. And what, are, what characteristics of life, uh, or what are the characteristics of a life of one who is in the world, but not of the world? So 1 Thessalonians 5:23, you can see it there. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, set you apart completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Men, listen. uh, If we're going to be on the right side of history, we're going to be with Christ, who is our unchanging Savior. We're going to be on the side of the Word of God. We're not going to move from it. That's the right side of history. We know even all the way through Revelation, we know how this ends. And if we're on His side, uh, we win. Praise be to God. So let's go ahead and dive into our groups now. Let's do that, and uh, we're going to go ahead and start talking about those questions right in our, in our, in our tables there. All right, let's do it.